that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and we're syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available, as always, uh, as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. This week on the program, we launch a three-part series critically reflecting on the history of one of Canada's most loved parks, and that's Stanley Park. In light of the ongoing Truth and Reconciliation Commission's work, how are we to relate to Canada's favorite park, despite the troubling uh, colonial practices that have gone into the production of, of this urban space? And we'll be looking at a lot of these issues and unpacking that history that maybe you're not aware of, and uh, looking at much more as well. You're tuned into the city. Stay with us. How you make me feel in the grandest of ways 
These words I have to say ain't like anything you ever heard in your day. Straight spit in my ways. This is how I play. Live my life in the realest way. See how I do me is in what I see. Yo, you're just like me. So happy to be upon the scene. This is what I mean. You live super long and kept yourself strong. Now in these times, I can spit these ill rhymes and committing no crimes. Yo, you did us good. This is how we could straight rap ourselves. Your knowledge is my wealth, so respect is dealt, and the love is felt without a doubt. No one scream and shout. Time to let this out. And this is The City here on CITR, 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and uh, we're syndicated on CJSF, 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and uh, this is also available as a stream uh, from thecityfm.org and a podcast. Um, check it out. That's thecityfm.org. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in today. On the program, uh, well, you just, first of all, you heard from Miss Christy Lee. Uh, she's Musqueam, um, and uh, just got a great track. It's called Experience. Um, you can check off or check out uh, some um, some really wonderful um, indigenous um, rap and hip-hop, and that's at beatnation.org. And uh, she was rapping in her um, the Musqueam's uh, dialect, Hulkamalum, uh, and uh, just a, a w- one of those songs that I think I can hear over and over again, and it's uh, just a great one. So this week we're launching... Uh, here on the city, a three-part series to critically reflect on Stanley Park um, as the park marks its 125th anniversary. And in the series, we'll hear from scholars and authors about uh, what we might call uh, the counter-histories of Stanley Park, and uh, in doing so, situate the park within, um, or situate the park as a colonial urban space within sort of colonial geographies or colonial spaces across uh, across Vancouver and across uh, BC, across Canada. 
um, and really look at this in, in a historical way, but also um, very much in the present, in the present frame, um, in terms of how we think about space and how it is made and constructed. So importantly, with the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I think we, in addressing the legacies of the Canadian residential schools, uh, it is essential for us to look at how urban space is produced and uh, through historical and contemporary colonial practices and the narratives um, that really defend and, and um, allow them to be employed. And these, these narratives and, and practices are often predicated on uh, erasure of indigenous presence or visibility um, and also uh, the, the invalidation of uh, land claims, which are very much, very much with us today in, in BC and um, certainly on the unceded uh, territory of the Coast Salish peoples that we are on uh, today and broadcasting from. On August 24th and 25th, the city of Vancouver hosted a public celebration of the 125th anniversary of Stanley Park. And it was a weekend event, uh, which included over 200 different performances, talks, and activities. And one of those um, to take part um, as a speaker was Jean Barman. And Jean Barman is Professor Emerita at UBC's Department of Educational Studies. And she's author, uh, she's, uh, author and uh, has edited many books and articles including Stanley Park's Secret, The West Beyond the West, A History of British Columbia, British Columbia, Spirit of the People, Aboriginal Education at the Crossroads, The Legacy of Residential Schools and the Way Ahead, and a forthcoming edited uh, book called Indigenous Women and Feminism, Politics, Activism, Culture. And I spoke with Jean Barman on August 29th. In your book, Stanley Park's Secret, you reconstruct the complicated uh, genealogies of the families who once lived in the park and the stories of their dispossession and displacement. Uh, can you talk more about uh, these histories and speak to those stories of dispossession? Well, the families who lived there were there because they were there long before there was a park. Uh, they didn't feel that they had um, repossessed or taken anybody else's space. Of the huge, almost thousand acres that became Stanley Park, was a, considered to be a military reserve from the time of the gold rush. Uh, it was feared that Americans, in particular, might invade, and so they set the space aside. And if you look at it strategically, it was pretty much nonsense because you know anyone who's invading wasn't going to get to that point. However, uh, they did so, and uh, there was logging allowed. Um, and people informally logged, but nobody actually lived there. But it was sort of uninhabited space. And in the 1860s, following the gold rush, a number of men, uh, Scots, uh, British, uh, English, uh, Portuguese, who had come and with the gold rush and had turned to fishing or some other kind of um, uh, activity. And they partnered with mainly Squamish women. And these were the Squamish were living in Stanley Park, um, well, I guess since time immemorial, if you want to use that term, uh, probably mostly seasonally, uh, using the uh, large trees, uh, fishing, uh, catching, drink, uh, getting shellfish, whatever you... And so, in a sense, these women invited these men into their territory, and they ended up settling around Brockton Point mm -hmm. on both sides, uh, north and south, where the totem poles are now. There were perhaps uh, 10 or 12 families here at one time at the most. And so they were there. They had families. As time went on. They had children. Uh, they had children resettled. In some cases, they left. And one Portuguese guy left. And so another, 
he gave his uh, he gave his house and his property to another Portuguese family. Uh, so they were there, and then uh, with the coming of the transcontinental rail line in 1886, uh, CPR, uh, there was. Um, the beginnings of what we think of as Vancouver, which before that had been a tiny sort of village um, around Gastown mainly. And that was where uh, the city fathers, some of whom were the same uh, businessmen, et cetera, who had previously been in Montreal involved with the railway, wanted to create a, a city, and they wanted a space that would attract other people. Because the CPR, if you remember, had gotten a lot of land in exchange for putting the rail line uh, to but through British Columbia and with its terminus in Vancouver, uh, which meant that yeah, there was a lot of speculation going on. And one of the ways at this point in time to raise the prestige of the city was to have a large urban park, like there was Central Park in New York, which also displaced a lot of people. There was um, parks in uh, Regent Park in London. There were parks in different places in the world. And so they got the first, virtually the first city council meeting they they passed this decision to ask the federal government, which it was thought at this time owned um, had authority over the uh, reserve, to allow it to be used for a park by Vancouver. And the <laughs> some of the people who were on the city council were also very closely linked into um, linked into the federal government, so they got permission. And so these families were there. There was a park, and the families were also there. And the families became visible because one of the first elements of the park which came into existence was the Brockton playing fields as the um, city fathers and the young men wanted to have a place that they could do the traditional kinds of sports. Um, and it, was, became, it became, the, uh, became the place to go on the weekend on Saturdays and Sundays because people would take their boats and they would just whip over, to, uh, whip over to Brockton Point. So that's when the families became visible because they were living very close to where, uh, you know, where they set up the uh, new way of being. And that was when they became, in a sense we're talking about, they became outsiders. That's when they became outsiders. Mm -hmm. Can you talk also about uh, some of the other locations um, that there were, there were settlements and that um, mm. families were dispossessed um, from? Yeah, there were... In Stanley Park, there were certainly there were Swamish people, as I said, who were living there. Uh, on some of them probably lived there most of the time during the year, some less so. Uh, and they had been there uh, for a very, very long time. There have been archaeological excavations, and I think there's I can't remember the exact number, but there's something like ten or twelve or fifteen sites. Uh, there's a map that the first city archivist, Major Matthews, composed after talking to. Uh, a lot of um, indigenous Squamish, Musqueam, and other people, which has got a number of sites on there. The two main ones were Hoi Hoi, which is variously pronounced, which is where Lumberman's Arch now is, and then a site which was just a little bit um, further west toward, um, toward, the, toward where the Lionsgate Bridge is now. But they people lived there, and <coughs> that at one point, when they started making reserves uh, in... Uh, after British Columbia became a province of Canada in 1871, uh, they went around and they created the Squamish, the commissioners created the Squamish Reserves, which are just across the water in North Vancouver. They created the Musqueam Reserve, and they visited the Squamish families who were living uh, at Hoi Hoi and at Chesus, which was to the east, to the west, and and considered making that also into an Indian reserve. 
uh, the correspondence which I've been able to locate suggests that they were favorable, but the provincial government uh, admonished them and didn't want it to happen uh, because I said that it was thought that the federal government had charge of this, what was this large military reserve, but the provincial government was not so sure and thought that it might be able to have authority over it, and it was too potentially lucrative a site for them to want to reserve there, and so no reserve was established. And so some families after that, I suspect, moved uh, moved to the other reserve because that was more a more solid place to live. Uh, and then the one of the telling moments for these various Swamish families, which we know because one of the uh, a man who was a child at that point called August Jack talked at great length to uh, the Vancouver City Archivist Major Matthews I mentioned before, and he told of their living at Hoi Hoi, think Lumberman's Arch one morning, and suddenly there's a hole being chopped in the side of their house for eating breakfast. Uh, an older sister who knew some English went out and said, no, why are you chopping a hole in our house? And it was men who were authorized to build a road around the new Stanley Park, and they had their instructions as to exactly where the road should go, and the fact that it went through a corner of their house didn't really matter. Hmm. Uh, they chopped out the corner of the house. And then eventually some of those families moved. And they moved down to, a number of them moved to Jericho because there were a number of people, families living at Jericho at that point as well, smallish families. Hmm. Can you also, in, in some of your, your research, you also write about the Kitsilano Reserve. Um, can you situate right. that within all of this as well? Yeah. Uh, there were, as I said, there were, uh, there were a large number of areas that uh, Squamish people, and particularly, we're talking now particular people who at the time were defined as Squamish, and some of them, Musqueam and Squamish, were very, a lot of them were, you know, they're intermarried, they, and they weren't as separate as we think of them being separate now, so they were probably, you know, people from other groups as well, but generally known as Squamish. Um, they had had a long, they had had a settlement near where the uh, Museum of Vancouver is and where the planetarium is now in Kitsilano, underneath the current Burrard Street Bridge, for a long time. And that had been made into a reserve when they made reserves. <coughs> but it was very, um, from the point of view of uh, expansive Vancouver, Vancouver became very expansive in the years uh, before the First World War, when there was a lot of, the uh, city grew tremendously, uh, there was a lot of economic activity, and it meant that this notion that these indigenous people who at that point were perceived as being sort of, you know, worth, not worth much at all, were living in this potentially desirable uh, site uh, was, not, uh, was not appreciated. And there were various groups who wanted to get a hold of the reserve. Uh, there was legislation which, in fact, made it possible where there was an Indian reserve in an urban area for people for it to be removed if the people who lived there were willing and they were compensated. Um, this had also happened in, uh, it's happened in Victoria with the reserve, which was in the middle of Vancouver, and it was in the middle of Victoria, and it was also happening, it's also happening in a couple of other uh, urban areas of Vancouver. And they, and there was a, there was competition in Vancouver to get, to persuade uh, the Swamish families that lived there to sell the reserve effectively. Um, and you know, it's difficult to tell from the records exactly how legitimate everything was, but in the event, the families that were there uh, accepted uh, something like uh, $11,000 for each family to, in fact, sell the reserve, this is 1912, 1913, and to leave. And they, the city, the 
city people arranged barges for them, and they were sort of barged off. Uh, as they were barged off, they each got their bank book, which had the amount of money in it, and so they were dispossessed. Hmm. Uh, and there's an, you know, if you mind if I go on, because there's a postscript yeah, to all of this, which is earlier on, uh, with the reserve, with all Indian reserves, it was possible where uh, railway companies or other kinds of development that was perceived to be, uh, you know, fashion of the day and very desirable, that they could expropriate parts of reserves for a sum of money with the proviso that it would be returned, that what they took would be returned to the reserve once it was no longer used for that purpose. And so the uh, Canadian Pacific Railway had a, wanted a kind of part of the, uh, the Kitsilano Reserve for a spur line, and they got it. They got 10 acres off of it. And it was in the 1990s that the uh, Squamish Nation in North Vancouver realized that the agreement, the original agreement for all of these purposes was it was no longer used for that purpose of return to the reserve. Well, of course, it had not been returned to the reserve, and they launched a lawsuit, and they ended up uh, getting a settlement of $93 million plus, um, plus the piece of land back, which is why you have that recent controversy uh, where they were going to put up billboards, and they had put up one billboard by the Broad Street Bridge, and it's still questionable as to, you know, I don't know the and maybe other people know, I don't know the answer as to how it's going to be developed. But if you look at, you know, when you walk under the Broad Street Bridge and you walk into that area, uh, that's the 10 acres we're back, whereas a museum of Vancouver and a whole bunch of those developments nearby are the reserve that was sold off, but legitimately sold off, so that's... Uh, that's still permanently sold off, but they do have that piece that came back as a kind of postscript to the Kitsilano Reserve having been there in the first place. Right. I guess more broadly, too, can you, I mean, we talk about Stanley Park and we talk about these um, instances of displacement, but can you talk right. more more broadly about, um, you use the term um, essentially sort of the erasure of Indigenous indigeneity in Vancouver. Right. Can you can you talk more broadly about these processes within Vancouver sure. and within BC? Sure. Uh, well, I, I mean, I think what's happening in Vancouver is, as you say, as you suggest, is part of a much larger process of displacement, and part of that displacement came about more generally because Indigenous people used the whole province. If you look at, uh, <coughs> excuse me, British Columbia, you know, it was a it was the large uh, coast. People lived along the coast who had uh, more complicated, more complex lifestyles in general more, because they had to spend less time uh, dealing with the basics of life because resources, cedar, salmon, were very plentiful. Uh, other resources were very plentiful. They needed people in the interior who had to spend more time actually make a making a living. But the, the bottom line is that people lived all over. And so when reserves were established. Um, and here we have to keep in mind that uh, there are no treaties in British Columbia and in the rest of Canada um, where reserves were set up. Reserves were set up as a consequence of treaty making. You make a treaty with us, we'll provide health services, we'll provide education, um, and you will give us your land and we will leave you, we will leave you, uh, you know, a space for a reserve. Well, the reserves were set up in any case, and the reserves were set up across the whole province. And so what you have in British Columbia is a kind of, a, you know, an unintended set of displacements, I think, in the largest setting, because the reserves exist across British Columbia, and that's where people, lots of indigenous people, I mean, where indigenous people call their home. But, in fact, 
settlement in British Columbia, newcomer settlement in British Columbia, has been very much concentrated around the uh, southwestern tip with little nodes elsewhere. If you think of Kelowna, Kamloops, you think of Prince George, Terrace, these are Prince Rupert, these are small small little areas within a much larger space. So in a sense, people who live on reserves uh, have often very limited economic possibilities. And so a lot of people who call the reserves home do not, in fact, live there. And so you have a, you have a, I think you have a very broad-based displacement, which, um, of which what happened with Stanley Park and Kitsilano Reserve is symbolic, but you have a, a large, large number of people who define themselves as indigenous, uh, who are displaced because of historical circumstances. They live in Vancouver or Victoria or live in one of the larger cities or li- even live in Prince Rupert, but in fact are from reserves around that area. And so there are people who are uh, existing on two different levels. They're existing in urban areas, but they're also existing as people who have got a homeland, but a homeland that they, for economic reasons, simply cannot afford to be, uh, cannot afford to be at. Um, the people who removed from Vancouver um, went to, in part, went to, you know, went to reserves. Uh, not all of them, because the people who were removed from Stanley Park lived, uh, were given, it was the beginning of the Depression, Great Depression, the beginning of the 1930s, and they were given rental accommodations of people who had been, uh, you know, people who had lost their, uh, had lost their homes because of the economic circumstances. And so the people who were physically moved out of Stanley Park were moved into these kinds of homes in East Vancouver. But there, but there was, for them as well, um, the same kind of displacement in the sense that you have one home, one homeland, which you identify with, and you are forced to live, live and spend your actual working life uh, somewhere else due to political or economic circumstances, which are not your fault. You're not to blame for it, but they nonetheless impinge on you dramatically in your everyday life. Hmm. Uh, when I, can I go on for a minute? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. When I, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I wrote this book called Stanley Park Secret, not because I set out to write that book, but because uh, over I've written other things on British Columbia history, and I've talked to a lot of people. I like talking to people about their experiences as British Columbians, their family's experience in British Columbia. And I met uh, a couple of different people who told me, you know, if you really want to write a good story, write about our family, because we used to live in Stanley Park. And they'd tell me these stories about it. And I would then uh, think, well, this is interesting, but I've never heard about this. And I would look at the standard uh, work things in published, and I'd see no evidence of uh, families having lived in Stanley Park. A little bit about, yes, there were some indigenous people, but they quickly left, but that was it. And then um, I was on a radio show, and I was talking about one of these people in another context, and someone phoned in, and I was, the message was passed on to me, and it was a woman who lived in the Fraser Valley. Um, and she wanted me to come out and talk to her, and I went out and so I went out and seen and spent an hour talking to her about it. She had uh, grown, she was one of the families, her, uh, one of the Brockton Point families. Plus, on the other side, she was one of the, another group of people who were displaced, who were indigenous Hawaiians who had come with the fur trade and then worked as uh, laborers and worked in the docks in Vancouver, who lived at what was called Kanaka Ranch, which is where the, uh, uh, right across the water on the other side of Deadman's, um, uh, Deadman, uh, Deadman's Island. Mm-hmm. And she talked about both those families and talked about uh, displacement. 
And uh, I said, well, it's very good, but I don't know anything. She said, oh, well, I wrote it down. I've written, I spent days writing this down for you. And she gave me a floppy disk, which she had the basic <laughs> of the story on. And so I was caught, and I ended up writing the book. Mm. And the book was based on a chain, of, a chain of acquaintance where they knew families. I talked to these people and talked to other people. Then I read the Stanley Park. Uh, I read the Park Board minutes about Stanley Park, and I could see, you know, once I knew the names of people and once I had that story, which came from descendants, I could read the Park Board minutes in a very different way than I had done before. But my point of telling you this story is you talk about displacement, how important it is. Well, these were <clears throat> the people that I met and I talked to, descendants, and probably at least a dozen and probably more. I don't can't tell you right now many. But they all, even though this was... Um, about 2003, 2005, 2006, this is now two generations after their families were uh, dispossessed, displaced from Stanley Park. They still identified with it incredibly strongly. Hmm. And they, <clears throat> it's somewhere that they called home they would go back to. Um, one person I talked to, family that lived in Alberta, they told the story of how this woman had died in about 1998 who was descended from the Stanley Park families. And they wanted to put her ashes underneath a lilac tree, which is uh, near Brockton Point, which is still there, or descendant of the lilac tree is still there, and they're very, families are very attached to it. <coughs> so, excuse me, so they wrote to the park board and said, can we please do it? And the park board said, uh, at that point, it was pretty, uh, you know, pretty traditional. We do not allow ashes in Stanley Park. So, in any case, they came and did it anyway. But <laughs> uh, now what you have, what you have in Stanley Park, if you have um, the descendant, of son of one family, one of the last women, uh, women who grew up in Stanley Park. Uh, there was the people. He was the instigator for carving the new totem pole that's gone up there, and that went up about uh, four, four or five uh, years ago in honor of his um, of his mother and of all the families who lived there. Uh, it's the one which is the unpainted one in the front, and then you have another set of descendants who are creating a sculpture in honor of. Uh, the member of their family, who was one of the first people to live in Stanley Park, and that's got permission from the park board to go up and will probably be erected in the next couple of years, uh, which is him plus uh, the two indigenous women he lived with, one after the first one died. So the point is that, you know, displacement is something that happens at a point in time, a historical point in time, and we're talking about displacement, which happened almost, you know, 90 years ago, but it's still absolutely critical to the lives of, you know, lots and lots of people. Mm. You gave a, a walking tour um, during the 125th anniversary celebration, um, and and I guess just tell me about your experience with that. Uh, that was that was actually very very rewarding, and I think speaks to how this story of the families in Stanley Park, which I was talking about in particular, how it it echoes for people in Vancouver. Uh, it was estimated that I would get between 15 and 25 people for it, and there were uh, probably about 60 who turned up, mm. who were everybody from uh, well, some a couple of descendants, and uh, some pe and some people who I know as you know historian Vancouver historians, but mostly just ordinary people who want to know, including recent immigrants who just thought that it was very intriguing and wanted to know wanted to know all about this. And I think what we've got we've got what this talks about is a sort of opening up of ways to see the past. And, you know, the interview we're doing is evidence of this. And a much greater willingness on the part of um, all of us, 
and the park board, which is, you know, the park board sponsored 125, and they invited me to uh, do the talk, and they've, uh, you know, we now have these elements, I said, these physical places, elements in Brockton Point, which recognize these families, which, when, while, when I started this story, there was nothing, you know, nobody acknowledged that it ever existed, and I think what we've got is we've got a really much broad-based opening of ways to see, uh, of ways to see our past in Vancouver, in British Columbia, more generally, which I, I find really, really exciting. I was very, very uh, rewarded, and I was very honored, in fact, that uh, there was so much interest in uh, in hearing about the families. And the, the uh, talk and the walk was on the site where families lived at Brockton Point, which was on both sides of the totem poles. <clears throat> and, I mean, there's always this pieces of irony. The If I can just... It's a sidebar, but it's not really. Mm-hmm. And that is that the uh, the totem poles which are there were bought, <coughs> acquired by the park board uh, when the families were still living there. But they were erected at Brockton Point to honor the uh, the court decision which removed the families. The city, city of Vancouver, and the federal government went to court to get rid of those families in the ni- in about 1923. And when the first court decision came down. The celebration event was to erect those totem poles that are still there. And so, you know, now we can see the totem poles, and we see the other totem pole was put up by uh, by a descendant in a very different way than we, you know, than we did uh, we did earlier on. Do you think it's, I mean, I, I was looking over the, there's the uh, online uh, timeline and history of the park, and uh, I was l- looking over it and, and trying to see if there's acknowledgement of, you know, the colonial practices that were involved in the the, the creation and the making of Stanley right. Park. And it's it's still not at all explicit in oh, a lot of the popular <laughs> narrative. And I'm just wondering... That's you, very interesting. I haven't looked yeah. at it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, like, is this enough? Like, you know, I looked at, over the program, too, and... Mm-hmm. You 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 were there to to speak to sort of this counter yeah. history and provide that that yeah. that story, but is this enough? And like, is it a lot of a lot of the literature and a lot of the celebration is still I I would say very you know triumphant in its in its colonial <laughs> yeah. narrative. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think I think you're right, and I I guess I slightly disagree with you in the sense that that's you know I think we need to acknowledge that that triumphant narrative is part of the story, is a big part of the story. Uh, the fact that the city fathers, you know, for their own little economic, probably economic selfishness in part, you know, wanted to get the park in place is, on the one hand, part of a colonial narrative, but it's also part of something more. And, <clears throat> yes, I would argue we should change the timeline. When the book was published in 2006, I wrote about these families, um, the park board by I, I never talked to the park board because they didn't talk to me, but uh, I had a lot of people I didn't know phone me, tell me that they had, you know, the park board was very upset with the book, and what was I going to do about it? Well, I didn't do anything because the book spoke for itself. And this was but in 2005? Now, yeah, 2005, 2006 when it was published. Right. Uh, there were, uh, uh, you know, people who had gone to the park board and said they needed to change the story, and the story wasn't changed, and then the the book somewhat ironically won the city of Vancouver <laughs> Best Book Prize, which, you know, kind of threw it back onto the city. <clears throat> and they have been, you know, they have allowed in the, 
they've allowed in the totem pole. They're going to allow in the other uh, bronze sculpture honoring another of the families that have done. And so there is change going on. Um, the other kind of change that's going on, I think, is um, there are other colonial practices which are not just, you know, the people that I've written about, but certainly the way in which the park was managed. And there's been a number of other changes which I think we need to consider. And one of them is, for instance, the zoo, the idea of keeping animals in captivity. You know, that sparked a great debate, and that zoo disappeared. Um, and there have been um, other kinds of... Uh, you look at the signage that's gone up in the park. Uh, the signage is now acknowledging uh, a larger variety of uh, aspects of the park than it did previously. So I think, you know, the families are just one small part of the way in which parks are always... Um, Manipulated parks are not parks are in some ways the least natural places we have, mm-hmm. and particularly um, if you look at uh, Stanley Park, you can think of it as having the east side and the west side, and the east side is where the action was originally. It's where these families lived because it was accessible by boat uh, to the rest of Vancouver. The it was where Brockton Point and all of the um, um, you know, the social activity, the sporty social activity went on for a very long time and still goes on. And it's much more uh, messed, messed up, so to speak. It was all, always a large, large part of that was logged both, as I say, legally and illegally before the park was established. And that was one reason that you could have, uh, you could have Brockton, you know, all of the playing fields at Brockton, uh, at Brockton Point because, uh, because it was uh, much more... Um, uh, it was much more accessible from the beginning. But, you know, we that's sort of understood. So there's, there's change. But there's also a lot of not change, because you're right. We had, um, I don't know whether there have been any archaeological digs or there have been any, there's not much acknowledgement of the various, all of the places where uh, Squamish and other indigenous people spent time around the park. And that certainly could very legitimately be acknowledged and be recognized as being part of the history, being part of the history of the park. Um, on a on Sunday, it was interesting when I spoke because one of the uh, people who came were two sisters who were the offspring of one of the uh, men in charge of the park, and they had who lived in the park. And there's no acknowledgement of all of the kinds of people who did service work in the park and made it possible. And a number of those families also lived in the park, mm-hmm. uh, lived in the park over time. Um, there's a whole range of kinds of individuals, events, entities that have contributed to making um, making Stanley Park a place it is today, and a lot of those are sort of, um, you know, those are sort of set aside as well in the ways in which, uh, you know, something, it's always the case that we have to make choices, and some things are much more um, honored and acknowledged than other things are. But I do think there's, um, there's change for the best. There's a new book out by... Uh, a really talented young scholar called Sean Karaj, who is a Vancouver, a Vancouver native, but teaches now at York and Toronto, called Inventing Stanley Park. Mm-hmm. And what he talks about are the ways in which elements of the landscape, the landscape and the grounds, et cetera, were all you know changed. At one point, they didn't like the color of the squirrels, and so they decided to get rid of the color of the squirrels and get another color. I can't remember whether they're getting rid of brown squirrels or black squirrels with <laughs> the reverse. <laughs> But they did one or the other. I mean, there have been all kinds of things like that that have gone on. You know, the aquarium is okay, but we get rid of the zoo. There are always choices that are being made, mm-hmm. uh, which involve an element of displacement, not always human, but still displacement of um, 
one aspect for another. I, I want to conclude by asking you to sure. reflect on the, the ongoing work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And we there's a number of events coming up this September, and especially as an educator at, at UBC, sure. um, students are encouraged to take part. Um, they get time out of class um, to do so. And I'm just wondering if, you know, some of my feeling is that if we still can't have an honest discussion about a lot of these colonial practices that went into the construction and the making of a place like Stanley Park, can we even get to that place of reconciliation if the truth is not even there? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's many, yeah, as I said before, and I, you know, really believe there's many truths. depends on whose truths they are and mm-hmm. the bit of that, uh, you know, we have to make decisions. I mean, I'm, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has been a long time coming and is doing extraordinarily good work. Um, I'm giving one of the talks for it at the um, University of Fraser Valley, um, and that has made me realize just, you know, how critical all of this is, because all of the educational institutions, post-secondary ones and probably others, are setting time aside for it. Um, but what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is doing is talking about um, residential schools, which I actually wrote an article, the first article I wrote about it, wrote about residential schools was, what, 30, 25 years ago. And when I submitted it to a publication, I was it was sent back and said, this is really, really well written, but we're not going to publish it because nobody cares about residential schools. Go away. And what year was and this? I, what? what? What year was this? This was 1985. Right. Almost 30 years ago. And I ended, so I ended up, what I ended up doing with two other people who had the same experience was we co-published, uh, we co-published two volumes of writings, including our own called Indian Education in Canada with UBC Press, who was mm-hmm. very brave in, in doing this. And these books were really recognized around, around the world and are still, actually still selling uh, quite amazingly. And then I published, I published other stuff on this issue, on uh, issue of residential schools in various um, in various formats over over the years, and so I mean it's again it's something which is very very slow in coming, um, and I thoroughly approve of what's going on. But on the other hand, uh, you can argue that the attention paid to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is looking at one part of the phenomenon of what the kind of treatment that Indigenous peoples have received, including their treatment at Stanley Park and elsewhere in, in the city of Vancouver. <clears throat> and in a way, it's always easy if you have sort of like the poster child of a problem and you say, okay, um, I've paid my dues to the poster child, now I don't have to think about the larger issue mm-hmm. of which this is a manifestation anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's always that that that, that kind of, uh, you know, two halves of the cup. The cup is half full, but the cup is also half empty because the cup is half full. Well, Gina, I think about the um, the Musqueam struggle to protect the the uh, the village side of Susnam in in Marple, and I mean that was in, in the last two years. And again, to me, that was reflective of very still a very colonial mindset from the provincial government, unwilling to step in to protect that that sacred burial ground. Um, and I just again, these questions keep coming up. How can we if we can't even treat people with dignity and respect in the same way that right. white European settlers um, receive the same treatment. How how can we, again, and I think your point's well taken, is this just the poster child, the residential schools um, as as an item is, or, or a, you know, uh, an issue is one, one aspect of 
um, colonial practice. I couldn't agree with you more. And if you come full circle to that, where, of course, was the burial site, where was the big burial site for both indigenous and non-indigenous people in early Vancouver? It was Brockton Point, and it was Deadman's Island for, uh, for, indigenous, you know, for indigenous people. Because mm-hmm. that was where um, uh, the practice was to put, pe- put people in boxes in trees, and that was, there are pictures of this, that's amply demonstrated, and that's never been recognized. Um, there, are in, there are lots and lots of stories in the city archives of uh, individuals being uh, taken over, bodies being taken over to Brockton Point and uh, buried, because there's nowhere else to bury them, and stories of, you know, teenage kids getting paid a <coughs> dollar to put somebody in a canoe and take them over to Brockton Point and bury them. Uh, the families who live there buried their children there, and we haven't acknowledged that either. And so you've got a site which had both indigenous people and non-indigenous people being buried until the first cemeteries came in Vancouver, I don't know, 1887, 1888, 1889, and we, we ignore that as well. And I think, you know, the Musqueam situation and the situation in respect to uh, uh, burial sites that are not part of Stanley Park, I mean, that, you know, they are, they, are part of, mm-hmm. they are part of this history that we don't, we don't recognize. We, and, you know, on the other hand, we can't do it all, but I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. The Musqueam, you know, Musqueam situation was incredibly unfortunate, but it's, it's all around us when we look. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how many conversations sometimes I still can have and, and um, good people, but um, certainly they're, they're sympathetic to um, indigenous issues and struggles and, and the realities and challenges um, but within all of this, you know, some people say, well, a lot of these things happened back then and I'm not, I, I'm sort of not, I'm not responsible for it directly. And therefore like we've moved on that, that was then. And there's been, you know, you know, th- things have changed and there's some sort of equality, you know, however much we want to debate that, I guess, you know, how do we, how do we have this discussion with people that maybe feel like it's. Um, it's something of the past, and, and we are now all on a level playing field. Well, I, I think, you know, quite interestingly, one of the ways that we've moved beyond it is through the Internet and the web. I mean, I, you know, I am in touch. We're all in touch much more with more elements of what goes on in the larger world. And we, are, we have opportunities. You know, we can't force people, we can't bully people to adopt a certain kind of perspective or a mindset, but we have, I mean, we have a program you're doing right now, and so in a sense, it's just up to each of us who has that kind of commitment to sort of do what we can, um, talk to people as we can, you know, accept, um, accept kinds of ways of doing things that might be a little bit out of our comfort zone in, in terms of taking action, and then, you know, just move on, I think. Mm-hmm. Move on, but also move backwards, you know, look backwards and look forwards as we move on. Um, but, you know, I, I agree with you, but I also, you know, realize there's no, there's no single solution. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of, you know, we talk and then we talk some more and then we use the web, we use the, we use the mechanisms, you know, the means that we have at our disposal. Mm-hmm. Well, unless there's anything else, uh, we can leave it at that. Well, I must say, I'm very, I'm at, I really am grateful to you for, you know, for doing this program and for talking about it because each, you know, each little, it's each little sort of chink in the wall, you know, makes one more, you know, you get the whole wall because you have these various bricks that are put into the wall. And I think this is, you know, this is one more brick into that wall of, uh, 
acknowledging you know acknowledging our, acknowledging our past as well at the same time as we move on into the future. Well, it's a real pleasure to speak to you, and I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jean. Take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
with the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Witnesses, art and Canada's Indian residential schools. An exhibition featuring artists from across Canada who have directly experienced residential schools or are witnesses to its ongoing impact. Programming will include guided tours, lectures, artist talks, performances, and online programs. From September 6th to December 1st at the Belkin Gallery, Main Mall, UBC. All are welcome. Admission is free. For more information, visit belkin.ubc.ca. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM uh, and also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. And you're listening uh, also maybe on uh, CITR.ca or CJSF.ca syndicated on CJSF Fridays uh, 10 to 11 a.m. here on CITR Live, Tuesdays 5 to 6 p.m. and available anytime as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst and we're going to wrap up the show, but... Uh, you we're listening to a conversation with Jean Barman, and she is the author of a number of books um, and uh, articles and has done a lot of research on um, indigenous uh, history and, and struggles and issues um, in in British Columbia and more more generally uh, British Columbian history. And uh, one of her books, Stanley Park's Secret, uh, was sort of the focus of our discussion and a lot of her research about sort of these counter histories or untold uh, histories that aren't as common or we may not know about and reflecting on that uh, in the context of the 125th anniversary of Stanley Park. If you missed any uh, bit of the program, you can uh, find it and download it. Again, that's the thecityfm.org. And uh, we're going to be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in and uh, have a fantastic week. <laughs>